Today, Liz and I discuss part three of the Obesity Code by Dr. Jason Fung. Today on the Keto Cult Pod. Welcome to the Keto Cult Pod. That's Colin. And that's Liz. Let's get deep into ketosis, the trends and the culture. We typically do. We do. That's not out of the norm for us. Not so, at all. darling Liz, how have you been? How is your week going? How is keto? Keto is fierce. Mm. I feel feel fiercely keto. Mm-hmm. Um Whatever that means. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. But it's good. It's going well. It's going well. I'm just, you know, I'm just um, doing under 20 carbs. Just your basic, basic bitch keto. Oh, speaking of basic bitch keto. Shout out to Alyssa. Shout out to Alyssa. But you're you're hitting the gym. Yeah. I'm starting to up my cardio in preparation for my trip to Europe where I'll be doing a lot of walking and... I really want my endurance to be peak, you know? You know what I think you should start doing? What? Starting off your mornings on Instagram with a cardio, everybody. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Don't. Um, TM, TM. Yeah, I might might file charges of... Cardio, everybody. (laughs) Uh, I'm not opposed. I'm not opposed to that. Well... Um, but I yeah, expect I'm, credit. I went. I went to the gym for the first time in a long time today, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. What did you do? I, I literally just did thirty-five minutes on the elliptical. That's it. That's it. And I think I have a tendency with everything to like mm-hmm. go all in and guns blaze. Do guns blaze? That sounds right. Yeah, guns blazing. Guns yeah. a blazing, just. Mm-hmm all in and then i get burned out and then you know so i'm trying to do just just showing up just doing that 35 45 minutes and then out okay just keeping it simple which you know is what i've always done with diet yeah well with it this, makes it you know, sustainable to make it sustainable so i'm hoping that will keep it sustainable for me okay maybe i'll start doing other things I don't know. I'm just taking it one day at a time. Well, I love that for you. <laughs> and how's your carnivore? Carnivore is rolling along. Today, yeah. as of recording, is day 21. Wow. Um, it's been really easy, except for I've yet to kick the ice cream craving. I've had it for like two weeks mm. now. And Rebel, rebel. Enlightened, actually. Oh, enlightened. Because I did that giveaway... Uh-huh. I have like a freezer full of enlightened bars and pints, like an abundance. Oh, wow. And it's just sitting there taunting me every time I open up the freezer to oh get like gosh. meat out to pull out the meat. Um, <laughs> there she is, just staring at me. Butter oh, pecan. She's sitting on top. Ooh. Usually, when I do carnivore, egivore, mm-hmm. fa- water fasting, like those, I have to clear house. 
even if it's like moving things to my garage for you know fridge or freezer where it's just like out of my eyeballs so that's incredibly impressive that it's in front of your eyeballs and you're still hardcore carnivore i'm surprisingly strong-willed when it comes to food even though i'm a foodie right i don't know where that comes from but um i think i think it uh, balances it balances beautifully with my hoarding of food like Mm -hmm. i have a scarcity complex with food where i think if i eat it i won't have any left and that stresses me out so when i like buy i usually buy two Mm -hmm. so that when i eat one i still have one so it's still there so i think just knowing that i only have one of each flavor sitting in my freezer it's like it pleases my brain Mm -hmm. so i have that i guess on my side but everyone's been speaking of like you know carnivore everyone's been saying i look so svelte in the face lots of compliments today Thanks, and I shade for you. I don't know if you noticed. It's beautiful. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think both of our faces have come down since uh, yeah. December. Absolutely, you're looking um, less inflamed. If that is a, yeah. if that is okay for me to say, I mean that it in is. every good way possible. No, I. That's like the nicest compliment <laughs> <laughs> I've ever gotten. Please good. tell me I'm not inflamed, girl. You are um, so not inflamed. And I feel it. Like, I can feel it in my carpals. My carpals and tunnels. You feel it in your fingers? You feel it in your toes? feel it in my toes. <laughs> Do you know what I'm referencing at all? <laughs> Keto's all around me. Ah, and so the feeling. feeling grows. Yeah, you Keto do know what I'm referencing. Keto is all around us. Come <laughs> on and let it snow. No, that's not right. Come on and let it, let it. keto yo. <laughs> oh, jeez. I found it. I always have to work in the keto yo. I got I to gotta build my brand. <laughs> um, Speaking so. of building a brand. Oh, I love building a brand and a bridge. Oh. oh. Um, Where are we going? So last episode uh-huh. of the Keto Cult Pod. Yes. We... Familiar. <laughs> Maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> You heard of it? I have, yeah. It's pretty, Haven't it's had a chance good. to listen. I mean, oh, oh. Um, so I can't find it. We talked. <laughs> I can't find it. Where is that pod? How do I get to the pod? Um, anyway, sorry. We talked about part two of the obesity code, which was uh-huh. much about the calories in, calories out theory. Yes. We received a question to our email. Oh my! Which is. The keto cult pod at gmail.com. Oh. Feel free to email us anytime. Yeah. I was so happy. Fill my box um, with your questions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. This is from Rocio. Is that right? Rocio? Your guess is as good as mine. It looks lovely of a name. Uh huh. Um, and I'll just read it. I had a question about the book and the whole calorie counting thing. So I can totally get that the whole calories in, calories out method is BS, but don't people have to eat at a reduced caloric total to lose weight? I mean, I could easily gain weight on keto. So I wasn't sure what Dr. Fung was saying about the best approach to losing weight. I kind of want to hear from both of you on it. Hmm. So then, and then she sent a follow-up too. Um. I'm guessing the way to lose weight is our bodies have our body satiated. We keep our body satiated with fats and proteins. Um, but what about us beluga whale type of people that can just keep eating until we pop? When you guys are discussing how Dr. Fun, Fung describes the buffet smell, which was like 
if you just eat a whole buffet of pork chops, like, and then you smell food, you're just like, oh, which I've definitely been there. And mm-hmm. you disagreed. Um, right. And she is on your, <laughs> she's in your camp of like, that doesn't team. really happen to me. Mm-hmm. If I'm full, it's more like the smell is less enticing, but I can still eat it. Yeah. What would Fung do? <laughs> WWFD. What <laughs> WWFD, and I think it's interesting because this chapter does kind of go into that more. Yeah, it's a, it's a good segue. Look at that. It's a good segue because um, part three does go into that. It does. Um, I won't. I'll try to avoid stepping into that puddle because mm-hmm. we want to save that for the discussion. But like, it's a great question. Like, yeah, it's so easy to gain weight on keto as easy as it is to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. I think. <sighs> I think there's truth to calories in, calories out in a sense that if you are consuming more calories than your body needs, your body is going to store that energy somewhere. I think that only makes sense. I think his point in that chapter was to say that they aren't, they're independent of each other. Calories Mm -hmm. in, calories out are two separate things that don't always. But he also says calories in, you know, your body could use those calories. Sure. Like, like. And I think this gets, it'll eventually get to how obesity is a multifaceted, multi-pronged thing. Um, do you need to be in a calorie deficit to lose weight? Mm, yes, maybe. But it, I think yes, ultimately. The basal, it, but, you know, we talk about like that BMR, that basal mm-hmm. metabolic rate and how it's kind of in flux. So you don't really know what that calorie deficit is right. or looks like. And it's also, I think, and we'll get there the um hormonal issue is kind of more pressing than the caloric yeah it absolutely more secondary so we will yeah. get there but it was great to just <laughs> get uh, emailed some questions and yeah but i, I can i can say i don't have an answer yet but i think i will have one by the end of this book right and i you know i was a long time calories in calories out believer like that's that's how I lost a hundred pounds when I was in college. Like I only calorie hunted. So, you know, I reading and, and this is my third time reading this. And every time I read it, I'm like, but really <laughs> like calorie is a calorie. I like, I get that a calorie isn't a calorie. I agree with that, but I still think calorie deficit seems important, but yeah, they can't calories in can't be the only answer because no calorie is the same. Your body doesn't treat it the same. Right. As another type of calorie. Right. Like, I think he says it's broccoli and sugar, I think he talks about. Is that the, right. Exactly. Or spinach or kale or something. Or like olive, uh, olive oil. Yeah, olive oil. Whatever. So yeah. it's a it's a multifaceted answer that I don't have for you, Rocio. And I also wanted to say, like, feel free to email us anything. We also set up um, a discussion group on Facebook. Mm-hmm. It's called the Keto Cult Pod Discussion Group. That's so. Oh, that's a stretch. <laughs> I know. I really, I really reached for a group name. Um, but if you, ha- if I love, I mean, that's the whole point of this is evoking these discussions and having different opinions. And you know, maybe someone will read this book and be like, "This is all BS," and that's totally fine. Like, and I think it's so great to have those discussions, and that's why I made a space for it. So feel free to dive in post any feedback thoughts and just start the dialogue um and that's on facebook on Facebook. Um, yeah 
Yeah. What What is Facebook anymore? It's just for groups. Yeah. It's, it's something. <laughs> it remains something. Yeah. Okay. Because we all know keto's actually happening on Instagram. Yeah, we do. Uh, speaking of Instagram, I yeah. want to talk about our keto trend of the week, which you shared with me, what your view I of it did. is. And go ahead and tell the listeners what you think is the keto trend of the week. I think the keto trend of the week is keto hamburger helper. I saw she claims keeping up with the keto dash. She's seen this. Megan, some you delicious saw looking. One and person. And then I saw like t- one other person post. Okay. And I know like two people. <laughs> <laughs> I know two people doesn't sound like a trend, but when they both look really good and like something I want to make, it really stuck with me. <laughs> look, two people wearing van sho- Vans shoes yes. at. A Walmart at one given time uh-huh. does not make it the trend of Walmart. I maybe, but I appreciate the effort. Walmart. You did better than I did. I haven't seen anything okay. cohesive on the gram this week. Yeah, um, there's just a lot of people. Uh, I think just trying to keep going through the new year, getting their goals, keeping them in check. Mm-hmm. Um, but this keto hamburger helper looks good. You sent it to me. It looks delicious. It does. It also looks like it may spike my blood sugar. I I know. Uh, Which... I'm going to try and find out. Okay. Are you going to test? Maybe... Yeah, I can do that. Oh, I would love that. I would I would do that. Please and if do. it spikes me, it'll definitely be an OMAD. Oh, yeah. Which is fine. Yeah. You mostly do OMAD anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm definitely over breakfast. Yeah. I only and, I only eat it when I'm like off and that's not even then all the time. Yeah, and then if I if I don't take a lunch break at work, OMAD becomes very easy. Yeah. <laughs> so Yeah, and it's easy to do on keto if you're really doing it, I think. All right. And with that, I think it's a great time to take a break because we have a big big main event coming up. Yes, we do. Part featuring three. Dr. I Jason Fong. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we'll get into that right after the break. I'll see you after that, Liz. (laughs) Okay, bye. Bye. Level with me. Be honest. Did you go to Starbucks today? I bet you did. How much you spend? $7? $8? Girl, what if I told you you could get a cup of coffee for much less? For $3? There's just one problem. You can't drink it. But it would really help Liz and I. If you want to help us keep this podcast rolling, well, unfortunately, it does take a little bit of money, and we would really love your help. And I, yeah, I'm here I am. I'm pandering for your money, honey. Sorry. That's what I got to do sometimes. If you want to help us out, it just costs $3. Just donate us a cup of coffee. Follow the link in our bio for details. Welcome back, everybody. How was your break, Liz? It was amazing. Where'd you go? Anywhere? Um, I went to the bathroom. And oh. I went. Yeah, that's it. How are you? Oh, that's all. I'm lovely. Um, I went and had a quick tan. Oh. Mm-hmm. I went down to Tijuana. Wow. You, you did yeah. much more than I did. I feel so unaccomplished. Yeah. I am very cultured and traveled. <laughs> Says the guy that, <laughs> yeah. whose last trip was to KetoCon. Um, um, 
And you're about to go to Eindhoven. Eindhoven. The <laughs> Netherlands. The Netherlands. Will you be wearing wooden clogs the whole time or? Yeah, most of it, especially on Good. King's Day. I mean, when in Rome. You have to. I also only have six weeks left to learn all of Dutch language. Oh, that shouldn't be a problem. So I got to cram that in too. Um, okay, so we have, we have things to discuss. We do. We're here for a reason. We are. And that reason is fung. Because we have a podcast also. <laughs> is that what this is? Yeah, come for, for the, the last Jay two the hours. I just thought, what are we doing? What are we podcast? Should I have been recording all of this? Oh, oops. <laughs> okay, so we're discussing part three of the Obesity Code by Dr. Jason Fung, MD. Mm-hmm. Canadian medical heartthrob. Oh. Do you have a poster of him on your bedroom ceiling? No, just the wall. That would be inappropriate. Oh. Oh. To my husband. Would he mind? No. (laughs) Okay. (sighs) So, he has a few chapters. The first chapter is called A New Hope, Chapter 6. A New Hope. Mm Mm-hmm. And what did we cover in A New Hope? Well, I mean, (laughs) lastly, we talked about the failed hopes, right? About how calories in, calories out isn't real. Right. Um, So the new hope we hope is that we can develop more rational, successful treatments for obesity, right? Correct. And the false gods of the caloric religion have been exposed as charlatans. I really like that. Haven't they? That was really good. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed a few things in this section. Okay. His, his little quotes and such. Yeah. One was relatively in the beginning. I remember. Okay. But, um, I have many. Where is it? Oh, about how um, they the healthcare professionals could not co- convince people of this calorie model. So what was left to do? Blame the patient, of course. Yeah. They berated, belittled, and ridiculed and reprimanded their patients. And it was it transformed obesity from their failure to understand it into our lack of willpower and or laziness. So true. That sounds like my childhood in a couple sentences. No. No. That makes me sad. Um. <laughs> So, what causes weight gains? There's so many theories. Uh, I'll go over them very quickly. Ready? Calories, yep. sugar, refined carbohydrates, wheat, all carbo- carbohydrates, refi- <laughs> dietary fat, red meat, all meat, dairy products, snacking, food reward, food addiction, sleep deprivation, stress, fi- low fiber intake, genetics, poverty, wealth, gut, microbe, childhood obesity. That's all. Yeah. And those are all... <laughs> Not, not well. They're not all wrong necessarily, but those are not the overwhelming factors to well. Why and obviously some are in conflict, right? Um, well, of course. So there's always been so many theories, um, and you know, and he kind of equates this to what causes heart attacks. Well, there's family history, age, sex, diabetes, hypertension, hypercholesterolemia. Smoking stress, sure. like a physical. There's going to be some bot. Like I'm telling you all now, I am going to botch many words in this section, like real bad. So, um, so yeah, like there's lots of risk factors for heart attacks. Just like there's many different um, <laughs> causes of obesity, and 
you know, just like a heart attack, obesity is a time-dependent disease. Right. It takes time. Um, and that's why short-term studies are kind of, you know, ir- like not irrelevant, but just not not the whole all picture. encompassing. Is that, yeah. Yes. So of yeah. course he gives us an analogy. Which is, uh, if we were to, of course. He does this often. He often gives us an analogy, which I love. If we were to study the development of a rust, a rust in a pipe, which, like, that's a job. That was was my nickname in high school. (laughs) Old rusty pipe. Oh, good old rusty pipe. (laughs) (laughs) Rusty pipe. What was it? Wait, what was your rival? It was. Petty, Petty Storms. Storms. Adam Petty and Petty Storms. <laughs> Petty Storms. Please welcome to the stage, mm-hmm. Petty Storms. I love, that's my favorite. Get out your dollar bills, y'all. I love Petty Storms. Petty Storms is the best drag name I've ever heard in my life. Um, <laughs> okay, so Petty rust Storms. obviously takes a long time to form. So looking at a study of like one or two days is ridiculous. And we've right. made this mistake with obesity, Right. Because, you know, we conduct these tests that take place over a couple months or whatever, less than a year, um, whereas it takes decades. Um, So this is all coming to the hormonal obesity theory, which is um, obesity is a hormonal dysregulation of fat mass. Sounds right. Why not? Um, you know, we talked earlier about what causes our body set weight to become high in the first place and how do we adjust this thermostat. And, you know, we previously talked about a lot of hormones. We talked about leptin, which is the key regulator mm-hmm. of body fat. We talked about ghrelin, the hormone that regulates mm-hmm. hunger. We talked about peptide YY and that other one that I can't pronounce that regulates <laughs> satiety. Um so these are all hormonal things that happen in our body to that regulate fat and appetite and all these other things. So, of course, obesity seems like it would also be hormonal. Um, and But we want to avoid the false assumptions, which we talked about last time also, about calories in, calories out, the basal metabolic rate, um, that we exert conscious control over cal- calories in, fat stores are essentially unregulated and that a calorie is a calorie so this is all just we busted them yeah we busted all of these myths previously so now mm-hmm. we're gonna start finally talking about insulin insulin is how the audiobook refers mm-hmm. to it insulin insulin so drives me nuts colin do you know what a hormone is um a hormone is the sound that a street walker makes <laughs> oh no <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Thanks. I just got it. That was really good. <laughs> Thanks. I'm a comedian now. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to start another podcast where I just make puns. Oh. Oh, boy. <laughs> and you make that no, hormone. hormone. <laughs> <laughs> now it sounds terrible. Oh, my gosh. Now you're going to laugh every time you hear the word hormone. Yep. Thank you. Um, they're molecules <laughs> that <laughs> deliver messages to a target cell. Yes. That's correct. Yes. Yes. Two points for I did you. my homework. Yeah, you did your homework this time. I'm so proud. Thanks. That <laughs> means a lot. It really shows real growth. 
And it really says Yule Tide. What? <laughs> what? Don't ask. No. Insulin know. delivers the message to most human cells to take glucose out of the blood for energy use. So, and it kind of, he likens it to a lock and key. So insulin acts on the insulin receptor to bring glucose. So insulin is that was the key. Go ahead. <laughs> the receptor. Yeah. Is I, lock. That this whole, like, picture he painted with the lock and key was very difficult for my brain this was not effective for me so if you look at a door right yes right a door has a lock on it usually right maybe if you live in a rough part of town there may be multiple locks well okay better safe than sorry and there's a key for the lock Mm -hmm. so the insulin is the key and the receptor is the lock and this yes. is, and there might be receptors in your muscles. There might be receptors in your brain. There might be the re- problem, receptors all over your body. My brain didn't like this because he kept introducing different numbers of keys and oh, how much each later, key yeah. lets in. And it yeah, was just, it was hard for my brain. I didn't like that's this That's when we get to insulin metaphor. resistance. I'll, I'll help you out. Don't worry. Okay. I Do got you. Do you have like a diagram you could show me? I have something. What about a diaphragm? Mm, Don't know what that is. Um. (laughs) (laughs) It makes a hormone. Oh, boy. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So this is where we talk about um, how food is broken down. Fats are broken Mm -hmm. into fatty acids. Carbohydrates, which are chains of sugar, are broken down into smaller sugars. Dietary fiber is not broken down. It moves through us without being absorbed. Which is why we subtract it from total carbohydrates. That means poop. To get net carbs. Yeah. (laughs) Certain foods, particularly refined carbohydrates, raise blood sugar more than other foods. The rise in blood sugar stimulates the insulin release. So this is where we begin. Stuff we should know. Stuff we know. Already. Ish. If you're on keto, you should know all about insulin and blood sugar, and this was not news. No. We know insulin is a key regulator of energy metabolism. Mm -hmm. Did we know who discovered insulin? Yes. Let me find him. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I actually made a note of this in my brain, and I've I've lost it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. His name was... Well, he won the 1923 Nobel Prize in medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frederick Banting. Is it Frederick Banting mm-hmm. and J.J.R. McLeod? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Which was really crucial at the time for, you know, type 1 diabetes, which for the longest time was a death sentence, basically. Yeah. Um, and I, I think we'll get there later about, like... Um, I think in like ancient Greek times, diabetes, like literally they would call it the body melts itself into urine. Like it just <gasps> like every you oh just like pee out your body. Like that's all they understood about it. Like then people would Bless. die. Like it was just terrible. Um, <clears throat> but insulin helps move uh, this flood of glucose out of the blood into storage for later use. We store glucose by turning into glycogen in the liver, a process called glycogenesis. Mm. Mm. Insulin is the main stimulus of glycogenesis, but the liver only has like a limited amount of space for glycogen. 
So all those excess carbs, all that extra goes uh, to be uh, stored as fat. And that process yes. is called... De novo lipogenesis. Ooh, which means from new. Lipogenesis from meaning making new fat. Mm-hmm. Cool. So um, glycogen is easily available but limited in supply. Um, so, you know, there's enough to keep you running when you're not eating. Um, and during a prolonged fast, per se, your body can make new glucose from its fat stores, a process called glucogenesis, the making of new sugar, where fat is burned to release energy, which is sent out to the body, the fat storage process in reverse, which is like the goal, right? Gluconeogenesis. Is that what I said? You left out the neo. Oh, my I bad. Just, I think you just read it too fast. Your brain just... <laughs> Gluconeogenesis didn't. is the making of mm-hmm. new sugar. Correct. So that's a great phase to be It's a in. fun word to say. Imagine playing that in Scrabble. Ooh, that's like 20 billion. Would that fit? <laughs> I don't think that fit on the board. Mm-mm. So insulin is a hormone store, a storage hormone. We eat, insulin goes up. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> I hate you so much. Oh. I can't even read it now. And it's all over this book. <laughs> What's the difference between a storage hormone and a regular hormone? Well, one of them. Is there a joke there? (laughs) (laughs) One you say for a rainy day. Oh my gosh. I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. Sounds right. I just heard storage hormone and I just laughed. I can't. (laughs) (laughs) I've ruined that word for the rest of my life. For a lot of people. Um, You're you're welcome. (laughs) You're welcome. Um. So we eat, insulin goes up, makes sense. We fast, insulin goes down. Mm-hmm. Bada bing, bada boom. <laughs> Don't have any boom bots. I like how he calls glycogen is like your wallet. And fat. This st- one I did like. Yeah, and fat stores are like a bank account. So you're going to like mm-hmm. run off of everything in your liver where glycogen is stored. That's your wallet. So you're going to burn through all of that. And then once you're out, we, we go to the bank. We're like, yep. bank, please use my thighs. <laughs> burn that. Burn that mm-hmm. stored fat. Can you please gluconeogenesis my oh. <laughs> my thighs? And the bank's like, I sure, because you've been fasting for a long time. Um, yeah, I really like that. <laughs> and it was it was a good one. But actually, I think like isn't the first fat used the abdominal fat? The subcutaneous yeah. fat. Yes. That's interesting. Why is that, though? Um, well, I know that's the most dangerous fat storage. It's like this, right. the yes. fat stored around your organs. Right. I don't know. But, why well, is it the first to go? Other than... It's very interesting. It's a really great design. <laughs> there's no... Uh, I guess there's no muscles immediately surrounding it. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. know. We'll look into that. I would like to know the answer to that. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So what do you think, Colin? Could insulin be the hormonal regulator of body weight? I would imagine so. Mm -hmm. Based on what Dr. Jason Fung tells me. Um, Obesity develops when the hypothalamus orders the body to increase fat mass to reach the desired body set weight. We talked about that a little bit previously, too. Um, How most people's weight remains relatively stable. This does not mean, however, that body weight is unchanging. 
The key to understanding obesity is to understand what regulates body set weight, why body set weight is set too high, and why and how to reset it lower. If insulin causes obesity, it must do so predominantly through its effect in the brain. Huh. That's interesting. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, I also find interesting that most people, when he says people become obese over time, he says that they gain one to two pounds per year. Right. Which, who, who does that happen to? I would love if that was me. <laughs> Yeah. Please. I gained like 40 pounds in two months. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've been obese since like three or four. So I, I, I don't know. I must just be super insulin-y. Oh, (laughs) I love that. Super insulin. Like I feel it's almost like type two diabetes is the complete opposite of type one, where it's like, I have so much insulin and so much resistance. You know, it's frustrating. It's so frustrating, but like, we're please take this insulin, <laughs> please. But we're going to figure take out my insulin. To, please. He, he tells us how to fix it. Oh, okay. Good. Which is like bless. Okay. So insulin. And I love mm-hmm. this. This is very fungian. You have said this many times when discussing mm-hmm. Dr. Jason Fung, where he says, I can make you fat. Actually, tell me how he can make Actually, I can make anybody fat. How? By prescribing insulin. It won't matter that you have willpower or that you exercise. It won't matter what you choose to eat. You will get fat. It's simply a matter of enough insulin and enough time. Boom. Drop the mic. Boom. Mic drop. (laughs) And it makes perfect sense, Mm -hmm. really. If you understand what insulin does, and now we do. Right. It only makes sense that if you give somebody who has high insulin levels more insulin, mm-hmm. it's only going to cause them to put on more weight. It only makes people more diabetic. More obese and more diabetic. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, and he'll, yeah, he explains this later, but yeah, you are taking sugar out of the blood in the short term, but that sugar goes somewhere. Yeah. You know? It, I, it is so baffling that that has been the answer for so long. Yeah. Um, ob- obese people secrete much higher levels of insulin than those of a normal weight. Normal meaning average. <laughs> um, Whatever that actually means. Right. Insulin levels are almost 20% higher in obese subjects. Um, insulin levels can be difficult to measure since levels fluctuate wildly throughout the day in response to food, which we know. Right. Especially depending on what kind of food. That's true. Uh, yeah. Um, so this research reveals a close association between high fasting insulin and obesity. And this relationship becomes even stronger when we consider only a person's fat mass rather than his or her total weight. Interesting. Um, so this is where we put it to the test. The insulin that insulin causes obesity. This is his hypothesis. If you take insulin, you'll get fat, right? Mm-hmm. Insulin causes waking. Insulin is commonly used to treat both types of diabetes. In type 1 diabetes, there is destruction of the insulin-producing cells of the pancreas, resulting in very low levels of insulin. Patients require insulin injections to survive. In type 2 diabetes, cells are resistant to insulin, and insulin levels are high. 
Patients don't always require insulin and are often first treated with oral me- medications. Did you ever take an oral medication? Uh, briefly, I took a metformin. Me too. Which we will get into. Oh, yeah. yeah. Can I do a slight tangent? Of course. So th- I, that's what here. I do best. So the word insulin is used many, many times in this part of the book. Mm-hmm. And I, while reading it, listened to the audiobook at the same time so that I could keep myself focused because I had to cram this in this afternoon. And mm-hmm. like I said before, the guy re- that recorded the audiobook keeps saying insulin. Yeah. And so every time you say insulin, I hear him and my brain go insulin. insulin. And it's like it's making my brain just want to like collapse upon itself. Mm. I, uh, so this is going to be rough for me. This is why Dr. Jason Fung recorded the second book himself. Does he say insulin? No. It's like people who say diabetes. So. Yeah. I hate that for I some know. reason. Yeah, and I don't know if that guy's also from Canada or what. <laughs> Wilfred Brimley? <laughs> no. Is that what you're talking about? The, oh. <laughs> the insulin <laughs> man, not... Uh. Jeez. Oh my God! But well, he's who. I mean, he made it like a meme that diabetes. Yes, I know your diabetes medical testing supplies. But Jason Fung, Doctor uh-huh. Jason Fung, yes, um, he <laughs> records. He does the recording of the diabetes. The code, diabetes code, which I love. And he says to insulin or insulin. Yeah, I think he says insulin. Now I have to re-listen to that one. That'll be oh that'll be for another time. That's, yeah, that's for. Next season on <laughs> Next the season, pod. we'll go into that. Um, okay. But long-term studies Sorry. in type 2 diet <laughs> never apologize. Um, okay. Long-term studies. <laughs> I hate you. Um, long-term <laughs> studies in type 2 diabetes show the same weight-gaining effect of insulin. The United Kingdom Perspective Diabetes Study Group, organized in the 70s, was the largest at its time. Um and once again, it found, you know, it had two groups who received uh, standard versus intensive treatment. So um, half the group was either injected with insulin or sulfonylurea. I know it's yeah. in like every commercial. Every diabetes Is commercial it? talks about sulfonylureas. Yeah. They do? Yeah. Yeah, like um, I think jar dance and... There's so many, oh. there's so many commercials for type 2 diabetes. It's pretty shocking. And if you live in another part of the world that's not yeah. the United States of America, who never sees commercials for drugs. Right. It's absolutely baffling. Um, Interesting. I don't think I've ever heard that word prior to this. Mm-hmm. So, it's not a, so, and he'll explain, yeah, the difference. Um, yeah, I think Jardians is a big one. Um, increased insulin levels, whether... Um, injected insulin or the sulfonylurea. Uh, newer types of long-lasting insulin produce weight gain too. What? Um, and even like a study as recent as 2007, they compared those two things and the group gained an average of 4.2 pounds in a short period of time. Wow. Um, yeah, the more insulin the doctors gave, the more participants gained. And if we know anything about type 2 diabetes, because of insulin resistance, um, people who are on insulin, like they have to increase the increase all the time the amount of insulin they require. So you're always you're on a plan where you're just jacking up 
because in the Gosh. insulin resistance isn't being in any way addressed. So you're only just injecting more and more and more insulin. And as we'll get into, making yourself even more resistant. Exactly. And fatter. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when they um, incorporated, I think they had patients cut 300 calories per day from their eating. And even with like calorie reduction, it did absolutely nothing. People still gained weight. Um, their blood sugars were great. <laughs> but oh, they, that's good. Yeah, there was, <laughs> there's one study. Um, their blood sugar levels were great. What happened to their weight? They increased an average of 19 pounds in six months. Jeez. Yeah. Insulin also causes weight gain in non-diabetics. Um, insulinomas, a very rare insulin-secreting tumor, usually found in non-diabetics, causes massive weight gain. That's so, not like something from a science fiction novel. Like, I know. I. It's very rare. Um, yeah. There was a 2005 case study um, that describes a 20-year-old woman who is diagnosed with an insulinoma, and she gained mm. 25 pounds over the year prior to her diagnosis. Um, and as I think as soon as they removed or did, they did surgery to correct it and yeah. her weight just fell off. That's insane. Okay. So this is where we get into all the oral hypoglycemic agents. Yes. Which is basically medications for type 2 diabetes, mostly. Yes. You want to talk about that? Okay. <laughs> so the first one he talks about is uh, sulf. So how did you say that? Sulfonylurea. And metformin. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think metformin is probably the most common yes. treatment for type 2 diabetes in the United States, at least. Right. Um, but he, so the first one, the sulfonylurea, mm-hmm. did I say that right? Yeah. Oh, look at me. Oh, look at me. Look at you go. Um, it, it causes the pancreas to produce more insulin to lower blood sugars, mm-hmm. um, causing weight gain. Metformin decreases the amount of glucose produced by the liver and increases glucose uptake by the muscles. Interesting. Um, which I don't believe affected weight at all. Right. So insulin, the sulfonylurea, they all have different effects on insulin levels. So the in- right. sulfonylurea raises insulin levels metformin doesn't increase insulin at all um patients in the metformin group did not gain any more weight than those on diet alone um so it sounds like the sulfonylurea has a more negative effect than metformin yeah and then next so let me may i ask since we're on metformin you took metformin i took metformin Mm -hmm. i did it for a very brief time because as soon as i was diagnosed i immediately started keto yeah so I stopped taking the metformin pretty quickly. How long were you on the metformin? Um, I was on and off for a while um, okay. because it really upset my stomach a lot. Mm. So I would be on it for a f- like a few months as long as I could tolerate it. And then I would go off and then on. And then, yeah, once I found keto, I stopped because it was. Did it affect your blood sugar at all? Do you know? I wasn't testing my blood sugar regularly. I okay. was, you know going in every few months to get my a1c checked and it didn't Mm. really seem to have a huge effect so what was the point to make my stomach really upset (laughs) right i don't know i did i didn't seem to do much for me um so our next one uh uh-huh you want to take that one you got that (sighs) you got that word thiazo thiazoloid 
No, thiazo You're so close. What do you got? I'm going to say thiazo Dion's. Thiazo Celine Dion. Um, yeah. So Celine Dion <laughs> does not raise insulin levels. Um, no. These drugs showed a major effect other than blood sugar lowering ability by, ampl- by amplifying insulin's effect. This insulin sensitizer caused weight gain. So I think this basically makes you more insulin sensitive, but also mm-hmm. um, shoots you up with a bunch of insulin. So. Oh, good. That's cool, just cool, what cool. we need. <laughs> they magnify the effects of insulin. Um, Do we have incretin agents? Incretin agents. Incretin hormones are secreted in the stomach in response to food. So this drug is... Um, does this work with, like, satiety hormones? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Certain yes. endocrine agents at higher doses promote weight loss, likely related to the slowing of stomach emptying. Interesting. Which is interesting. So it makes you just feel fuller longer. Yeah. Weight is not gained. So it causes you to eat less. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really affect... Oh, it does cause a short-term increase in insulin release, but only in association with meals. I'm not sure which... Like drug brands, that would be. I haven't really heard of an incretin agent. I've heard of incretin, but maybe only in the, in the like hormone sense. Maybe not like something you you ingest. And what's we're looking for? Exogenous. Exogenous. Uh, next is. we have alpha <laughs> alpha glucosidase inhibitors. Ooh, very nice. Mm. This is a class of medication that blocks enzymes in the small intestine that help to digest carbs. Neither glucose so, nor insulin secretion is affected. So its goal basically is to turn carbohydrates into fiber in the same way that they just pass through. Right. Okay. But it and so it works and it lowers insulin a little. It, it patients lose a little weight, but it's not the dr- significant. <laughs> it's not significant. Okay. Next. And this one I'm excited about. Okay. This one sent me on like a big internet dive because they sound so glamorous. The SGLT2 inhibitors. It sounds good. It Um, does. So this is SGLT2 inhibitors, the newest class of medication for type 2 diabetes. These drugs Mm -hmm. block the reabsorption of glucose by the kidney. So it spills out in the urine. This lowers blood sugar resulting in less insulin production. SGLT2 inhibitors can lower glucose and insulin levels after a meal by as much as 35 to 43% respectively. Studies consistently show a sustained and significant weight loss in patients taking these drugs. Sounds great. Um, Furthermore, their weight loss is predominantly a loss of fat rather than lean muscle. In this case, we lowered insulin and patients lost weight. So my first like, reaction was, "Sounds great. Where I'm do I board. get this? Um, can I go grab this at CVS? I'm like, it. what is the deal? Just inject Immediately. me. Inject me with Just, it. Just yeah, I'm gonna order a truckload. Yeah. So I get on the internets. Which one does? How do I find this? What are the side effects? Oh, are there side effects? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Let me just read a few. They oh. include, but not necessarily limited to. Oh. Genital infections. I'm sorry. It is the most common adverse effect of this. <clears throat> of these SGLT2 inhibitors. Oh, um, that's a big one. Yeah. Uh, mycotic infections, urinary, tra- urinary tract infections, and osmotic 
diuresis. Oh, no. Were higher in patients treated with these. The next big one is the increased, re- increased risk of diabetic ketoacidosis. Oh, that tricky ketoacidosis. Which, uh, ketoacidosis that scares everybody away from keto. Um, <laughs> For real. Right. So we don't want that. No. We also have um, decreased bone mineral density and therefore increased risk of bone fractures. I'm good. Wow. Increased risk of lower limb amputation. Oh, no. And finally, on my list, increased risk of uh, gangrene in patients using these inhibitors. But those, those sound so, like know. diabetes related things. Like yeah. amputations so really... and gangrene. Right. So you're not really doing yourself any favors. No. I mean, those are the yeah. things I'm trying to prevent. Right. Oh. So not something I'm going to go order a chocolate of. Well, I don't think. Good news for you. Oh, please tell me. Dr. Jason Fung can make you thin. Uh-huh. Oh, I love when he says those words. I can make you thin. If ins- Liposuction? <laughs> uh, no. If insulin oh, okay. causes weight gain, can lowering its levels have the opposite effect? As insulin is reduced to very low levels, we should expect significant and severe weight loss. I like severe oh, weight yes. loss. Yes. I want to become so mm, disgustingly huge. thin. Kate Moss me, please, Dr. Okay, Frank. and this is where he gets back to your uh, SGL2 okay. inhibitors, which lower glucose and insulin, and are an example of the effect that lowering insulin may have on weight, albeit in their case, the effect is mild. Which mm. I'm like, no, but you said it was... You, you just said, said it was beautiful and lovely. It sounds so good. Oh, they only lost 2% of their body weight. Well, you know but, what? I mean, <laughs> you lowered my insulin mm. and I'll lose weight. I'll take it. I thought this was interesting about type 1 diabetics. So, okay. you know, type 1 diabetes, the hallmark is that you... You're... Um, it's an autoimmune disease that destroys insulin-producing beta cells of the pancreas. Blood sugar mm-hmm. increases. The hallmark of this condition is severe weight loss. Severe weight loss. Um, yeah, and this is where um, the Greek physician, oh, I'm going to say Ardius of Cappadocia. Sure. Um, uh, I read um, Arthritis of Cappuccino. I'm sure you did. <laughs> this is where he, when he uh, first described type 1 diabetes, diabetes is... A melting down of flesh and limbs into urine. It sounds so glamorous when he says Ooh, that. Painful. Until Please. the discovery of insulin, this disease was almost universally fatal. Not, that's awful. Um, yeah. Because, you know, insulin is way down. Patients lose a lot of weight. Like, literally, their bodies are melting into urine. Um, and that's I didn't so know crazy. this. This is interesting. In the type 1 diabetic community... There's a disorder called diabolemia. Which have you heard? Is, had you heard of this? No. Okay. And, and he says it's the deliberate underdosing of insulin for the purpose of immediate and substantial weight loss. Like that's, yeah. Oh my God. For cosmetic reasons. So you want to pee out your body for yeah. cosmetic reasons. So you can underdose yourself, which can be really, really dangerous and of you know, course. deadly. Um, but right. you will drop a ton of weight, obviously. I love that he, he says, what was the line he says? He says, so it's extremely dangerous and certainly not advisable. Right. However, the practice persists because it's an extremely effective form of weight loss. Oh, well, good. Oh. Oh. <laughs> he just makes it sound so, oh, like, well, I mean, it's sure. really effective. No, but it's really does the trick. But also you might die. Anyway, <laughs> 
So all of these results are really consistent. Insulin causes obesity. Lowering low insulin causes weight loss. We get it. Um, and we get back to like that why we get fat. We don't get fat because we overeat. We overeat because we're fat. Um, Which I love. Yeah. Which only underscores that hormones are central to understanding obesity. Obesity is a hormonal, not a caloric imbalance. Um, Say it again louder for for the people in the back. Now, have you heard of Dr. Robert Lustig before this? I have not. Not before this. I've seen him come up in a couple places. Yeah. I want to say he was in a documentary. I know he has. Not one we watched, right? No, no, no. He has a very, very famous talk that he gives. Um, it's on YouTube if you look up Dr. Robert Lustig. Um, really, really interesting. He's a pediatric obesity specialist. And okay. he believes that high levels of insulin act as an inhibitor of leptin, which is that hormone that signals uh, satiety. Mm-hmm. So when you're insulin resistant and your insulin is high, you don't feel that leptin. You don't feel satiety, which I think is what our friend who emailed us was kind of talking about. Ah, gotcha. So we'll we'll talk more on that about leptin and, but a lot of it is you know hormonally driven, and if you're eating carbs, you're gonna get more hungry more often. Um, okay. Yeah, you've got you have to chase that blood sugar spike. Yeah, your body wants to maintain it exactly, and that's why you know we talked about in the last part about how you know when they discovered leptin was the key to satiety, they they're like, this is it, let's pump everyone full of leptin, everything's yeah. gonna be great. But no, like we're leptin resistant too. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a bad time, you guys. Um. So both fasting insulin and fasting leptin levels are higher in obese people indicating a state of both insulin and leptin resistance. It is also possible that high insulin levels may cause increased weight gain by mechanisms unrelated to leptin yet to be discovered. Once we understand that obesity is a hormonal imbalance, we can begin to treat it. Bless. I mean, we need to lower insulin levels, right? Yeah. Okay. So, Okay, yeah, so go, go on, go on, go on. This is where we get to cortisol. Yes. Which I know. Which, um, you know cortisol? Ugh, all too well. I know the word, but like prior to reading this, I wasn't too familiar with oh, really? what it was. Oh, really? Oh. So I learned something today. This is a this is the stress hormone. Yes. Oh. Which I might have a lot of. Yeah. Anyone yeah. with anxiety? Hey, girl. You are pumping that cortisol. Mm, yes. So guess what? I can make you what? fat. Oh, yeah? Oh, I can make anybody fat. <laughs> okay, how? Oh, I'll, pres- I'll prescribe you some prednisone, which is a synthetic version of cortisol. Prednisone is used to treat many diseases, including asthma, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, psoriasis, inflammatory bowel disease, cancer. Glom- Big words. I'm going to say glomerulonephritis and <laughs> my asthena gravis. Sounds Whatever great. that is. Prednisone, which I, my, it's all, I think my mother was once prescribed it. It's very commonly prescribed for like a lot of things. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I was given it when I had, 
Oh, I had some kind of throat inflammation. I mean, they they wow. like yeah they they dole that out. Um, so cortisol is the so-called stress hormone, right? Um, right. Part of a class of steroid hormones. Um, so once released, cortisol substantially enhances glucose availability, which provides energy for muscles, very necessarily for helping us run and avoid being eaten, which is a common problem yeah. these days. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> um, for sure. Yes. <laughs> there's a, I'm sure there's a joke there, but I'm not going to go. No, I mean, cortisol is I'll very much, like, it very much goes back to that, like, flight or fight or flight response. Fight or flight, yeah. Um, which was crucial to our survival back in the day. Yeah. But now. Not so much now. No. Like, back in the day, it was triggering us to do physical things, which would have burned through that cortisol. But now our cortisol is stimulated by, like, work stress and, like, mm -hmm. life situations. A phone call. <laughs> oh, my God. My phone rings. Immediate cortisol. Yep. Cortisol and insulin appear to have um, opposite effects. Insulin is a storage hormone. You know, under high levels of insulin, the body stores energy in the form of glycogen and fat. Cortisol, however, prepares the body for action, moving energy out of the stores and into readily available forms like glucose. So it makes it seem like they would be opposites, but... With short-term physical stress, insulin and cortisol play opposite roles. Something quite differently happens, though, when we're under long-term psychological stress, which is kind of the type of stress that we're more accustomed to in our modern times mm -hmm. that we're living in. Um, I love the examples he gave. Yes. Were marital issues, sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Problems at work, yeah. sure. Arguments with children. I argue <laughs> with children all the time. Yes, on a daily. Like they're just and of course all sleep deprivation. <laughs> I thought that was just funny the way he worded that. Yeah, arguments like not my children, just any children. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> and full arguments too. Um, but these things don't result in vig vigorous physical exertion that would burn off the glucose under these conditions. The chronic stress remains high and there's no no resolution to that stressor and this was like really scary our blood glucose can remain elevated for months 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 chronically elevated cortisol leads to increased insulin levels terrifying uh, yeah and we're only getting more stressed as time goes on i'm only getting more stressed as i continue to read this oh should we just call it <laughs> off Jeez. Well, that'll be today's episode. Well, there uh, it is. <laughs> oh, boy. So using synthetic cortisol, we can increase insulin um, experimentally. So in this study that he cites, healthy volunteers were given high-dose cortisol, increased their insulin, and that increased their insulin levels 36% above their baseline. Prednisone lot, increases glucose by 6.5%. So, over time, this is like in how insulin resistance develops. So, insulin resistance should be expected since cortisol generally opposes insulin. Cortisol raises blood sugar while insulin lowers it. Insulin resistance is crucial to the development of obesity. Insulin resistance leads directly to higher insulin levels and increased insulin levels 
in, is a major part of obesity. Multiple studies confirm this. Oh my gosh. Hmm. And I thought this was interesting about Cushing's disease, which I think was something Cushing's in my childhood that I was tested for. Okay. Um, in 1912. You did not have? No, I don't. I did not. Um, in 1912, I have PCOS, which is not entirely far off. Um, mm-hmm. And as I read this, you'll, uh, people with PCOS listening will, will hear the similarities. Um, okay. So Harvey Cushing in 1912 described a 23-year-old woman who suffered from weight gain, excessive hair growth, and loss of menstruation. Um, in up to one-third of Cushing's cases, high blood sugars and overt diabetes are also present. Um, so the hallmark of Cushing's disease, even people who have it in mild forms is weight gain. Um, and in a study um, that he did, no matter how little people ate, they'd still gain weight. Cortisol causes weight gain. So I thought that was interesting. The hallmark of Cushing's disease though, is really this um, waist to hip ratio. Uh, A lot of people with Cushing's tend to carry their weight in their midsection. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And I also thought this was interesting. Other measurements of cortisol confirm its association with abdominal obesity. People with a higher urinary cortisol excretion have higher hip-to-waist ratios. They have cortisol in their saliva. Cortisol can also be measured in their scalp hair analysis. Wow. They literally excrete (laughs) high levels of cortisol. Everywhere. Wow. Isn't that crazy? If high cortisol can cause weight gain, then low cortisol should cause weight loss, right? So the opposite of Cushing's disease is Addison's disease. Thomas Addison described this condition in 1855, um, where, uh, and this this is an adrenal disease. So the adrenal gland is damaged. Cortisol levels can drop very low. And the hallmark is significant weight loss. So, again, wow. cortisol Almost levels. Almost all of them lost weight. Yeah, 97% of patients exhibited weight loss. So, cortisol is high, weight gain. You know, it's very much in line with insulin. Um, so, this is why, as most of us know, stress causes weight gain. <laughs> stress contains... Yeah. Neither calories nor carbs, but can still lead to obesity. Long-term stress leads to long-term elevated cortisol, which leads to extra pounds. Um, and I, I, I love his, like, stress. He's like, um, you know, you can do things like mindfulness meditation, yoga, massage therapy. <laughs> Studies on mindfulness intervention found that participants were able to use yoga-guided meditation and group discussion to significantly reduce cortisol and abdominal fat. So I can talk my fat away? Yeah. I just meditate. Is that what we're doing now? Meditate the fat off your body. We're burning fat as we podcast. Very relaxing. Just take a minute, Mm. close your eyes. Mm. Yes. Imagine yourself on a quiet island surrounded by crystal blue waters. Breathe in the blue air. Breathe out the red air. Is that a thing? I I don't know. I don't know. Sounds good. Okay. Then do it. All right. Okay. <laughs> but this is why, like, attacking obesity is such a multi-pronged thing. Diet's great. Being keto is great. Fasting is great. 
but you gotta reduce your stress get sleep there's there's a lot of things you gotta do like i'm sorry i hate to tell you this you gotta do a lot of things and that's fine you have to take it very seriously and like you can do a balance of these things you know you can yeah or you could be like an an insane person and do them all that's me is that you (laughs) i'm an insane person well, we're currently sleep depriving ourselves. It's late. Well, you know. yeah. So the next thing that he mentions is sleep deprivation, which is a major mm. cause of chronic stress. And I will tell you, I gained. So, you know, in 2006, when I dropped 100 pounds in eight months, it took me seven years to put mm-hmm. it back on. Um, and I think between the years 2014 and 2018, when I was in grad school, and then I was writing. Um, I wrote, you know, three films. I wrote probably 20 drafts of those three films. I never, I, while working a different full-time no job, sleep. I never slept. I never wow. slept. I was so stressed out. And I think just, be, and honestly, just between 2016, after my wedding through 2018, I gained at least 60 pounds. So. How much? 60 and how long? In like two years. That's insane. Yeah, because I wasn't just from not sleeping. Yeah, just from not sleeping. So I have kind of an adverse thought on sleep deprivation. Oh, I'd love to hear it. So I don't get much sleep at all. Mm-hmm. Like I go get in bed and I relax and I kind of like I don't think about things. Okay. I can kind of relax, but I don't necessarily sleep through the night. And I feel fully like, re- like refreshed in the morning. I don't feel like well, I. Well, I think that's like kind of like the meditation thing, right? Like, Maybe. yeah, I think being non in a non-stressed state. Whereas I was like okay. pulling all-nighters and freaking out and screaming and crying because <laughs> I had a deadline. So nothing's changed, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> um, sleep deprivation is a potent psychological stressor, and thus stimulates cortisol. Uh, so both leptin and ghrelin, key hormones in the control of body fat and appetite, show a daily rhythm and are disturbed by sleep disturbances. Interesting. So those uh, hormones, leptin, which makes you feel satiated, ghrelin, which drives hunger, mm-hmm. are both disrupted by not sleeping. So you guys, get your sleep, okay? So what, what effect does that have if they're both affected? Both your satiety and your Well, it could increase your ghrelin, so you feel more hungry. Okay. And decreases your leptin. Yeah. I see. Sleep deprivation will clearly undermine any weight loss effort that you do. Okay. So, let's talk about Dr. Atkins. Okay. I love Dr. Atkins for many reasons. Okay. First of all, one, did you know that he was a regular guest on talk shows? Nope. Yeah, he was on all of them. He was on... um, he mentions one of them. He mentions Johnny Carson. He mm-hmm. was on Murph Griffin a lot. Oh. He was on Dinah Shore a lot. Like, he was a very popular guy. I didn't know that. But could not have been more boring. If you oh. go watch YouTube videos, he's a total bore. Not like, like he was Dr. So... Jason Fung, who should be on every no, talk show. No, Jason Fung. It, very like, personal. I think he hosts a daily um, talk show in Canada, I'm sure. A morning wake up. No, I, I think it's a late show. night. Oh, you think oh, so? Oh, yeah. I think it's like a late night. All right. It's not a shock shock. <laughs> no. 
But yeah, so we're going to talk about Dr. Atkins now. Did you ever well, try I, Atkins? Um, no. Okay. But I do have his book. Yeah, you, you're. The first I know book. you're very versed in it, which I am not. I'm not versed in it. I just understand. You know, it. you knew that there was phases. I didn't know that. Well, we live in phase one doing keto. Okay, well, I didn't know that. Well, congratulations, you do now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Don't worry about the other phases. They are not keto. <laughs> Did you know um, that he was a fat man? <laughs> I love how he said that. The actual quote was, where was that? In 1963, Dr. Robert Atkins was a fat man. He was a fat like, man. <laughs> he was a fat <laughs> son of a bitch. What? I don't know why I found that so funny. He's a fat tub of goo. Uh, he was a fat oh man. Oh, my God. He was in New York City. Um, mm-hmm. And what kind of doctor was he? Was he a um, cardiologist? Yeah, he had a cardiology practice in New York. Yes, 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 yes. He was 224 pounds. Um, and, okay, so he, I think he, he had read some of the work of, uh, remember William, William Banting? Was that part one? We talked yes. about him. With his little yes. pamphlet. What was his pamphlet? Letter on Corpulence. Letter on Corpulence. Okay, so he had read all this previous material and mm-hmm. was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. It's time. It's it's Adkins time. I'm I'm going to do it. And he did it. And guess what happened? He lost a lot of weight. I, I think that's how, I think that's the first three words of the <laughs> book, his book. It's Adkins time. It's Adkins time. <laughs> what time is it? It's Adkins time. It's Adkins time. Uh, oh my gosh. So, you know, it wasn't, you know, nothing that he prescribed to himself or anyone was like new or groundbreaking. It, right. it was just a re- it was just re- repackaged and repopularized. It was uh, it was dumbed down. It was a very lay yeah. it was worded in a layman's yeah. way. Yeah. So, um, which was it was strictly just drop your carbs, right? So, because at the time, like people thought it in the fifties. Well, pr- I mean, prior to this, like people thought it was really scientific to be counting calories. Like it felt like a very scientific thing to do. Which makes sense. Which, sure, okay. For the time, yes. Um, <laughs> okay, so and there were a lot of other books. There was uh, Doctor Stillman wrote the Doctor's Quick Weight Loss, which was more mm-hmm. high protein. Also. It was. It wasn't just high protein. It was ninety percent protein diet, which is ninety percent hard to do, even on a carnivore diet. Yeah, I was like, that's a lot. Okay. Yeah. Um, Dr. Atkins argued in his nineteen seventy two bestseller that severely restricting carbohydrates would keep insulin low, thus reducing hunger and eventually leading to weight loss. Most physicians at the time worried that the high fat content of the food would lead to heart attacks and strokes because good old, good old asshole keys was around selling <sighs> that garbage. Voldemort. <laughs> Voldemort. Um, okay. So, oh, and have you read, um, why we get fat or good calories, bad calories? Um, I have three of Dr. Tobb's books. Okay. I have good calories, bad calories, why we get fat and the case against sugar. You have them or you've all read good them? reads, both, oh, okay. all, both of those things. I have them on my shelf over there and I have read all three. Oh, wow. Okay. Cause you said I have, I really them. like Gary Tobbs is kind of my Jason. Fong. Oh, I love that. We have to read one yeah. of his next for sure. Please. Um, I would love that. Um, but he started, um, 
um, also coming out with these books in the 90s and 2002. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. okay. And this next, see, this next section is called The Empire Strikes Back. Oh my God, you weren't joking. I wasn't you kidding. He's a giant nerd. And you know, you know, I'm a fool for a nerd. <laughs> Have you met my yeah, husband? You, are. you married I one. married a giant nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Who I noticed was wearing Harry Potter PJs. Was it yesterday? Yes. Yes, he was. Yeah, I loved it. I love that. He has, he has a lot of Harry Potter garb. He's a nerd. I'm okay with that. Um, okay. So despite a stunning lack of evidence to support the low-fat advice, medical associations such as the AHA, which is um, the American Heart, in, Heart Association. A bunch of liars. <laughs> yeah. And the American Medical Association were also quick liars. to defend their beliefs and denounce... <laughs> All these low-carb diets is fad diets. Mm-hmm. So they kept pushing their agenda, actually, and ramping it up. Because the 90s is where they really ramped up. Because I remember going yep. to the grocery store, and if it didn't say fat-free on the package, we were not buying it. You know? Yeah. like Snack wells, cookies, all day. Yeah. And I remember, like, the 90s and early 1000s being like, how are people... Like, I didn't understand how people were eating fat. Like, it was... And, like... I was. <laughs> You were eating fat? Yeah. Oh, bless you. Happily. I But I, I never, I didn't grow up in a in a home where yeah. I was restricted on anything. And I, I grew up in a very, very dire-sugared household. My dad was a pediatrician. He was a doctor. My mom was a nurse. You know, seemingly very educated. But, you know, educated from these institutions. Like, yeah, they were very well-read. And, you know, but it was from the American Heart Association, like every, all of those studies, like they were very, very fervent believers in fat is bad. And that's, that was so indoctrinated in me that I just started eating bacon, you know, a year and a half ago. That's how. Why wouldn't you trust those people? I know. I know. But by 2000. It wasn't your fault. No. In 2004, more than 26 million Americans claimed to be on some type of low carb diet. Yeah, I I remember specifically, I was in high school when Atkins was a thing. I remember thinking like rolling my eyes at it like these weirdos and literally watching menus at every restaurant cater to this Atkins diet. And like, I remember when I started keto thinking, God, I really wish that was still a thing. (laughs) But it's becoming a thing again. (laughs) Luckily. It is. It is. It is. I can get my my burger basket and my lettuce wrap and my, you know. Yeah. Um, Okay, so... Um, yeah, the AHA like admitted that reduced fat was unproven over the long term eventually, but, um, damage had been done, right? The damage had been done. Um, and they were still denouncing all the low carb stuff. Okay. No concern that the low fat diet had been proven a spectacular failure in every dietary study. No concern that obesity and diabetes Diabetes epidemics were raging full force. Under their very noses, the AHA fiddled while Rome burned. Holy fun. Come at it. Gosh. Well, he's Canadian, so he's not under their thumb. Yeah, he's like... Bless him. Yeah, screw you guys down south. During the 40 years that the AHA advised a low-fat diet, the obesity crisis grew to gargantuan proportions. And of course, the doctors were there playing their fl- their favorite game, blame the patient. It's not our fault the diet doesn't work. It's their far- fault for not following the diet. It's almost just like sick. It's almost like 
like it's almost like a dystopian nightmare. I don't know. Like it just all seems so unreal when you start to like open your eyes and realize what really went on. Yeah. Well, and you, I I know that most doctors, you know, they were operating from their best intentions. Of course. But I think there there are people at the top who knew what they were doing. Hmm. Probably. I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think AHA that gets back to the Ansel that, Keys. Being paid off by Big Sugar. Like, yeah. Big Sugar is a real thing. Yeah. I mean, and that's what it is. Yeah. It comes down from government and government funding these studies that find the results that they want and doctors prescribe, you know? Like, yeah. Ugh. <sighs> okay. Sick. I can't. I, I have to stay unstressed. My cortisol needs to be. Oh, that's right. <sighs> okay. Woosah. Woosah. Um, all right. So, in the, in the mid aughts early and mid aughts mm-hmm. there were more studies that like put all these diets against each other the atkins diet the ornish diet which is very very low fat the mm-hmm. zone which balances protein and carbs in a 30 40 30 ratio still a thing what why um also a diet that was like just eat a bunch of bars i think and like pre-packaged meals. yeah and shakes and- um okay so all of these studies where they put they they really wanted to test like if the weight loss from these diets was like long term. So um and they studied like okay, Atkins to Ornish it became clear that not only was weight loss better, but so was the entire metabolic profile. Blood pressure, cholesterol and blood sugars all improved to a greater extent on Dr. Atkins diet. All of this reaffirmed once again the superior short-term weight reduction of Atkins. So all of these, all of, I think all of these diets were found to be kind of short-term. Like no matter which diet you did, it didn't really, you know, produce long-term results, which I think is the issue with dieting in general. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. It's what happens when you stop dieting. And that's how, you know, people become, that's how they end up being called fad diets. You know, um, high protein, mm-hmm. low glycemic index diet maintained weight loss better than the low fat diet. Um, Dr. Ludwig from Harvard found the low fat diet slowed body metabolism the most. What was the best diet for maintaining metabolism? The very low carb diet. Um, okay. Perhaps eating refined carbohydrates leads to food addictions. Um, hormones such as, I'm going to say chlorolestokinin sure. and peptide YY <laughs> respond to ingested proteins and fat that signal to us to stop eating. Now let's return to that all-you-can-eat buffet mentioned in Chapter 5. This is getting back to our email question. Um, oh, yeah. At some point... You simply cannot eat anymore. The idea of consuming two more pork chops is sickening. That feeling is your satiety hormones telling you you've had enough. But what if you were offered a small slice of cake, apple pie? It doesn't seem so hard to eat now, does it? As kids, we used to call this our second stomach. I never said that. Oh, my brother always did. My brother was a sugar. My brother was always severely underweight. He was always very Mm. underweight. I was always very overweight he was severely underweight just a skinny little thing and he all oh, he was such a sugar fiend 
And like, he was like, I have a, and he would have a, a second stomach and he's like, oh, my third stomach just opened up. Like as, if it was sugar, he was eating it. Um, my family always tells a story about my oldest brother who after dinner was saying like, oh, I'm so stuffed. I couldn't eat another bite. And they said, oh, so I guess you don't want dessert. He said, oh no, there's always room for dessert. Mm-hmm. Like, that, and that's what everyone said. Yeah. Oh, there's always room for that. Um, after the mm-hmm. first stomach is full, we imagined there was a second one for desserts. Highly refined and processed foods somehow do not trigger the release of satiety hormones. So we go ahead and eat that cake. So if you think about foods that people say they're addicted to, it's always bread, pasta, chocolate, whatever, chips, cookies. The good-ish. Yeah. You notice, you notice the trend? No one says they're addicted to fish or, you know, spinach. <laughs> He says beef, but I'm like, um, sometimes I really kind of yeah, crave, crave it. burger a lot. I love that he tries to throw in, though, they're delicious foods. They're just not addictive. Like, that's food for yourself. Not everybody <laughs> likes fish and spinach. Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, you didn't like bacon. And this is why or you didn't eat bacon. Right. But this is why he says, you know, we call them comfort foods for a reason. Like, it's always these highly refined carbohydrates that, you know, and literally in our brains do give us comfort. But um, their toxicity lies in that processing. And that means, like, the over-processing because they are processed. Yes. Um, so this is where he talks about the Atkins decline, which we started talking about, about, like, compliance was the same, equally low in both groups. You know, these, um, of all those different diets, the Atkins versus zone versus everything else. We continue... Um, to eat all these highly processed foods simply because they're indulgent. Food is a celebration and feasting has accompanied celebration throughout human history, birthdays, weddings, holidays. What do we do? What do we eat? We eat cake, we eat ice cream pie. We don't eat whey protein shakes and lean pork. Why? Because we want to indulge. The Atkins diet does not allow for this simple fact and that doomed it to failure. I feel that's unfair of Dr. Jason. Fung. Okay. Speak. Preach. Um, in the Diet Revolution, okay. Dr. Atkins talks about how like this is not a lifelong way of eating. Oh. Um, he designed it as not necessarily a quick way to lose weight, but to lose weight and to slowly adapt yourself back to eating what most doctors would call a healthy diet. Mm-hmm. It was not a forever thing, which is why there's three phases to the Atkins diet. So the Atkins decline is also intended in that the hope is the patient or the person eating this way will eventually go back to eating those traditional foods that we're used to eating, but would somehow have the mental capacity right. to understand it better, which is also where it fails. But it's not fair to say that Atkins is a failure. Right. No, and I, I think diet. that the Atkins diet assumes you're going to have a patient patient which most yes, dieters are, are not. We want that right. quick resu- result. Most people want that quick, rapid weight mm-hmm. loss. And then once, you know, we all hit plateaus. We all hit, you mm-hmm. know, we all hit these moments in weight loss where it just stops. And it's just part of the process. It is what it is. And for the majority of people, once they hit that wall, they're done. They're done. Yeah. And yeah. and I think, I think we need to talk more about water weight too. Yeah. Like most of the initial weight loss isn't fat. I know. It's just, it's water. And when you start telling people like you didn't actually lose any fat, 
Like, I think they would maybe have a better understanding of knowing that what the plateau is. Right. But. Yeah. So. We're not the media. <laughs> we're trying. We, we, we might be. Um, okay. So because of this, you know, weight loss benefits can't be sustained. And that's true of any diet, not just Atkins. I mean, it's just, it's just the nature of people. Um, and I think, you know, when he talks about celebrations, I mean, this is eventually going to come back to the idea of fasting and that you can work celebrations into your life yeah. and that obesity is like this multifaceted thing. You know, we talked about sleep and stress and all these other things and controlling all these other things and allowing yourself to have celebrations and keeping it in that mindset of a celebration is perfectly fine. Um, yeah. And he get, does get into, like, a fasting feasting theory. We'll eventually get there. I'm just spoiling it all for you. Um, well, ruined. <laughs> my bad. So um, now we talk about the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis and that it's kind of incomplete because, you know, the paradox of an Asian rice eater um, being the most obvious for Asians, at least for... The last half century ate a diet based on white, polished, polished rice, a highly refined yes. carb. Yet until recently, obesity remained in extremely rare in those populations. So it's not all just carbs, right? No. No, there's more to it. There's so much more. So much more. <laughs> and most of it. Are we, are, am I, are you like prodding me to address what this might be? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, the difference, and there's a diagram in the book, mm -hmm. but the difference between the four countries that the study covered is sugar. Carbohydrates were pretty stable between all four. Mm -hmm. The one main difference was sugar, which was extremely low in China versus the U.S. and U.K. Right, right. Yeah, if, if you can. But they ate more carbohydrates. Yeah. Absolutely. And this study's yeah. from 2003. Like, it's not that old. And right. um, and sugar intake has finally increased, I think, in places like China. Like, it's starting to creep up more. Um, mm -hmm. But all in all, I mean, they eat a heavily carb, you know, from rice. They get their carbs from rice and yams and starchy vegetables and sweet potatoes. Not these, like, heavily processed things. They're not getting their carbs from Twinkies. I guess. Genetically modified wheat. <laughs> there you go. So mm -hmm. I, that is interesting. So, you know, just cutting carbs isn't the clear, complete picture, right? Right. right. Um, it's an incomplete hypothesis leading many to abandon it rather, rather than reconcile it with the known facts. Um, okay. So there's a bunch of studies of different, like, populations um like the uh, i'm gonna say einkorn the einkorn variety of wheat has been cultivated oh, since yes. <laughs> 3300 bc um by the 1960s the world population grew larger agri uh, agricultural techniques aimed at increasing the yield of the wheat um, which led to new varieties such as dwarf and semi-dwarf wheat Currently, 99% of commercially grown wheat is dwarf and semi-dwarf. I think that's interesting, like, that our food itself has changed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that that, you know, comes with a lot of health impl implications. 
I mean, it says a lot that the corn that the first American settlers were eating Mm -hmm. was multicolored, mostly brown. And now it's that bright golden yellow. And you don't know of any other corn. Right. Exactly. You can't buy it really in the market. That's right. So So we've changed everything. It seems insulin and obesity are causally linked. However, it's not all clear that high carbs, high carb intake is a primary cause of insulin. Obviously, sugar plays a crucial role, but there's a missing link, and it is insulin resistance. Insulin resistance. Insulin resistance. It's the major player. Yes. Oh, he go he goes in on Oprah a little bit. He he kind of digs mm, at Oprah. Oprah, Are you, if she's listening, look, oh, we apologize on behalf. Oprah. But yeah. we love you. I do you remember the wagon? A fat yes. that she rolled out. And she's in those yeah, tiny jeans. Too. Yeah, she looked so good. That black top. That was early the early nineties hit one. Yeah, I think so. Because in here he, he talks about um her two thousand five battle. So at her heaviest she was two hundred and thirty seven pounds. Which is less than I was at the start of the year. Which does not seem that large to me. Right, I agree. I feel I don't know. I don't know when that was. But also that's, you know, what's been publicly, um, you know. Right. We know. Okay. What she admitted. Right. By 2005, she'd battle her way to a relatively svelte 160. She was mm-hmm. exultant. Mm. She'd cut her carbs. She'd exercise. Oh, she had a yes. personal chef and a personal Didn't trainer. She? she did of everything course. right. Perfect. Because she's magical. Okay. And oh, is that why? <laughs> so why did she Or is it gain- because she has money? <laughs> Yeah, you can throw money at any problem. It's going to go away. Right. Um, <laughs> so why did she gain back 40 pounds by 2009? Why couldn't she keep the weight off? Why is long-standing obesity so difficult to treat? Time dependence. Time dependence in obesity is almost universally understood but rarely acknowledged. Ugh. Yeah, I mean, the larger you are... For the, you know, longer amount of time, the harder it's going to be. Of course. Welcome to my life. And your body is so (laughs) used to it. Yeah. My body's like pretty, my body, I think my body thinks it's set weight is 325. (laughs) That's what I weighed (laughs) when I was 19. Before I lost a hundred pounds, it was 325. And somehow my body always finds, it loves to hover at 325. It's like. Nobody, nobody. Our set weight's supposed to be like, I don't know, 110 pounds because I'm only 5'1", <laughs> you know? Right. Body, well. get it together. We're getting there. I mean, not, but, you know. You're doing your work. I'm doing my work. Mm-hmm. Um, those who have been obese their entire lives find it extremely difficult to lose weight. In contrast, people with recent weight gain have a much, much easier time dropping excess pounds. Um. Likewise, the carbohydrate-insulin hypothesis makes no allowance for the duration of obesity. Reducing carbs should cause weight loss regardless of how long you've been overweight, but that's not really true either. Um, the time frame matters a lot. Long-standing obesity is much more difficult to, tr- to treat. Um, and the reason is insulin resistance. Insulin resistance is Lex Luthor. Nerd. You've listened to the audiobook version of this. Yeah. 
Do you remember how he says that whole sentence? Does he say insulin resistance is Lex Luthor? No, he's. I'll do it for you. Okay. Insulin resistance is Lex Luthor. Ooh. Like <laughs> he like Ooh. he makes it this big he's deal drama. And the name was said again in this later in this paragraph, mm-hmm. and he does it again. Oh boy, Lex yeah. Luthor. Lex Luthor. Who, who's luckily fictional, but insulin resistance is not all too real it's too real oh to be real how do we develop this terrible thing um so the body resists change out of its comfort range by adapting to it so what happens with insulin resistance oh this gets back to your favorite analogy when insulin the the key no longer No longer fits into the receptor. The cell is called insulin resistant. Because the fit is poor, the door does not fully open. As a result, less glucose enters. The cell senses there's too little glucose inside. So to compensate, the body produces extra insulin. The fit is still poor, but more doors are open, allowing for a normal amount of glucose to enter. So basically... Um, the receptor has become resistant to insulin. So it's not as effective in opening the door. So your body's like, oh, I'm not getting glucose. We must need, we must need more insulin. We must generate more insulin. And then like all those doors are, and so it opens more receptors, but it's still like only part way. So that all these doors are only like half open. And it's just flooding with insulin to do half the job, basically. Again, my brain doesn't care for this. Okay, but remember, having all this, like, extra insulin in your body is making you fat. So. Are you telling me that? (laughs) (laughs) So, I have too many locks in my body? I don't understand. Yeah, with 10 keys, 20 glucose molecules Mm -hmm. enter the cell. Under conditions of resistance, the key does not fully open. So if you have only 10 keys, only 10 glucose molecules are allowed in. To compensate, we now produce a total of 20 keys. Now 20 glucose molecules are allowed in, but only because we've increased the number of keys. I don't understand why it's this is confusing. Much. As we develop I don't know why insulin, my brain cannot. As we develop insulin resistance, our bodies increase our insulin levels to get the same result, glucose in the cell. However, we pay the price in constantly elevated insulin levels. So, like, that's the issue. It's not really about the locks and keys. It's, like, that your cells <laughs> are resistant, and so your body's just flooding you with more insulin. Oh, so there's not literally keys and locks. Colin. <laughs> I don't know. Just the the it just didn't it doesn't work in my brain for some reason. No, that's fine. I I will say of all of his analogies, which are plentiful, this is probably one of the worst ones. Yeah, he's heavy handed on an analogy and metaphor. This yeah. one's rough. Okay. Um, and probably one of the most important ones he needed to make. I know, I know. Um, right. but. But I, I do understand. Yeah. Just I, the analogy, it didn't work in my brain. Okay. Yeah, you can ignore the analogy and just, like, imagine your body, you know, in the insulin's not getting into your cells. And all your body, your body doesn't see that the receptors are broken. It just sees, like, there's no glucose. So, I, obviously, there needs to be more insulin. Oh, insulin makes right. you fat? I don't care. <laughs> right. Um, because insulin resistance leads to high insulin levels... As we've seen, insulin levels cause obesity. 
So therefore, the problem of insulin resistance must rely in the receptor. The insulin receptor does not respond properly. But why? Oh my god, why? But why? But why? It's like a puzzle. And there are, you know, examples of biological things. So this is interesting. And I think these are kind of better analogies. Um, You know, when you relate it to antibiotic resistance, which is, gosh, always a thing. I feel like I went... We were going, um, boo-boo had to get something done at like an urgent care thing. And, you know, the nurse was like, well, we're trying to not give out as much antibiotic because of all the antibiotic resistance. Right. Which is a real thing. And like, this is how, you know, this is how super bugs and super bug infections are formed. Like, cause, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately these bacteria and everything, they develop an ability to survive on high doses of these antibiotics and then they just get worse and worse and progress more and more um so we need stronger drugs because of the resistance and it's kind of like that and um you know with persistent high level use of antibiotics that causes antibiotic resistance and then you know he talks about viral resistance which is the same kind of thing the stronger it Mm -hmm. just makes stronger and stronger viruses and then I really liked this analogy of a drug resistance. Um, you know, yeah. when cocaine is taken for the first time, there's an intense reaction, the high. You know, and you could obviously say this for a lot of drugs. You're mm-hmm. always chasing that high, that same high. And in order to do that, you have to take more and more. People can build up tolerance to narcotics, marijuana, nicotine, caffeine, alcohol, mm, benzodiazepines, and Mm-hmm. nitroglycerin Ooh. yes the mechanism of drug resistance is well known and it's this it's the same thing you know morphine for example acts upon opioid receptors to provide pain relief and when there's a prolonged and ex- excessive exposure to drugs the body reacts by decreasing the numbers of receptors it's drug it's called drug resistance i thought that was so great it is great. And that is, that's easy for my brain to wrap around. Yeah. And I mean, sugar is a drug. So <laughs> it's the same thing. If you think of like the insulin receptors, it's just, it's the same thing. It's a vicious cycle. And he oh. correlates all of this to being a vicious cycle. Um, okay. And so then we get back to insulin resistance and... The supporting evidence of that being the insulinoma that we talked about, that rare tumor that secretes abnormally large amounts of insulin, um, which, you know, can result in rapid weight gain. Um, Okay. And this is the thing. Insulin is most often prescribed in type 2 diabetes to control blood sugar sometimes in very high doses the question is does large doses of insulin cause insulin resistance a 1983 study uh, measured this in six months patients went from no insulin to 100 units a day on average their blood sugars were very well maintained but more the more insulin they took the more insulin resistance they got a direct causal relationship as inseparable as a shadow from a body Oh, another one. That's a good one. Um, so even as their like their blood sugar was looking better, their diabetes was getting worse. 
And Which is crazy. Yeah, and these patients also gained an average of approximately 19 pounds despite reducing their calorie intake by 13 by 300 calories a day. So calories in, calories out. Doesn't work. It's fake news. Ah, little fake news. <laughs> People who are stuck in this vicious cycle for decades develop significant insulin resistance. This is why the fat get fatter. The longer you're obese, the harder it is to eradicate. But you already knew that. Oprah knew it. Everybody knew it. <laughs> the most current theories of obesity cannot explain this effect, so instead they ignore it. But obesity is time dependent. Obesity drives itself. A long-standing obesity cycle is extremely difficult to break. And dietary changes alone may not be sufficient. So what came first? High insulin resistance or high insulin? Hmm. 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 The answer can be found by following the time course of obesity, of course. Oh. So there's a uh, 94, 94 study. Mm-hmm. Uh, researchers compared three groups of patients. We had non-obese, recently obese, who had been obese for less than five years, and then the long-standing obese. The non-obese had lower insulin levels, uh-huh. as expected. Mm-hmm. And both groups of the obese subjects had equally high insulin levels. Mm. So what about insulin resistance? At the very beginning of obesity, a person will manifest little insulin resistance, but it develops over time. So the longer you're obese, the more insulin resistant, yeah. resistant you are, which high insulin levels are the primary, primary insult. Insult. Oh. Insult, oh, yes. I am insulted by the, all that insulin. You should be. So his answer to that question <laughs> is, um, is high insulin. Mm-hmm. It came first. Mm. And does ha- does, how does insulin resistance produce obesity well i think we know that by now i mean the main compartments are the brain liver and muscle changing the resistance mm-hmm. of one does not change resistance for others for example heptic liver insulin does not affect insulin resistance of the brain or muscle we so when we um, ingest excess carbs we develop heptic insulin resistance um significant dietary Intervention will reverse heptic insulin resistance, but that won't have an effect on the muscles or brain. Lack of exercise may, you know, lead to insulin resistance in the muscles, uh, but has no effect on the liver or brain. What a what a puzzle. What a puzzle. What a puzzle. Not one I can easily put together. Persistence creates resistance. I like that. High hormone levels. Again, you know, you keep them high, they're going to stay high. Consider the body's daily rhythm. The hormone melatonin produced from the pineal pineal gland is virtually undetectable during the day at night. It begins to increase and its levels peak in early morning. Cortisol also rises in the morning uh, and spike just before we awaken. So for those of us whose blood sugar is highest in the morning... That kind of goes with the dawn phenomenon. It's because of that mm-hmm. cortisol that jolts us awake. And again, cortisol and blood sugar, not unrelated. Not unrelated. Not unrelated. Um, how does all this apply to insulin and obesity? Okay. The periodic release. Normally, insulin is released in bursts, which prevents the development of insulin resistance. Um in the experimental condition, the constant bombardment of insulin led the body to downregulate its receptors and develop resistance. Over time, the insulin resistance 
induces the body to produce even more insulin to overcome the resistance. In the case of insulin resistance, it comes down to both meal composition and meal timing. The two critical components of insulin resistance, the type of food and when we eat it. So is, this is interesting. So if we turn back the clock to the 60s, people still ate a lot of garbage. Like there were yeah. still Oreos. Kit Kats existed. Yeah. They lived on right. freaking white bread. Yeah, they did. <laughs> they ate a sugar, but not quite as much. Um, but here's the thing. They were only eating three meals a day. Like that was. Yes. All the time. Yeah, no snacking. No, there was no snacking. So if breakfast was at 8 p.m., 8 a.m. <laughs> and dinner was at 6 p.m., like that was it. And then they'd have lunch in the middle sometime. So there was a and lot a more fasting. 10-14 ratio. Yeah. 10 hour 14. Yes. So there's a lot more fasting time. Eating large, large mm. amounts of refined carbs like sugar and white bread make for higher insulin peaks. Hmm. What do you think? Um, so can I go back to eating refined carbohydrates okay. as long as I fast? Yeah, you can try. Is that where he's going? Is that where this is all going? No, remember, this is a multi... There's many, many... Oh, that's Many right. levels. Okay. Okay. Pul- uh, pulses of insulin are followed by a long fasting period. Okay. And... American survey of more than 60,000 adults and children revealed that in 1977, most people ate three times a day. By 2003, most people were eating five to six times a day. Never. Never? Never. Okay. Like, even when I... I, So, I obviously went to fat camp a lot as a child, (laughs) like you do, um, at least three or four summers. And without a doubt, like, and, you know, mealtimes are very structured, Breakfast, 8 a.m. We had like a mm-hmm. 10 o'clock snack, which was like a piece of fruit. Then we mm-hmm. had lunch. Then we had an afternoon snack. Then we had dinner. Then we had an evening snack. We were eating what? all day long. Yeah. We were also... And this was in the 90s? This was in the 90s. We were also literally working out all day long. Like, you know, first thing you did in the morning was aerobics. Then you went to basketball. Then you went to swimming. Then you went to the, you know, it was like constant activity. But we were absolutely, and it, and it was pretty carby things, like a fruit. It was like, yeah. and then I remember the evening snack was always like some crackers, like a little pack of wheat thins or whatever. Like, oh, I love a wheat thin. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. So, you know, and there's a reason for that because... I think for a long time in the 2000s, everyone thought that that's what was healthy. There was this myth that like eating frequently will increase your metabolic rate. Um, right. Your metabolic rate does increase slightly after you after you, the meals you ingest, which is the thermogenic effect of food, which is just the effect of mm-hmm. eating. However, the overall difference is extremely small. Eating six meals per day causes the metabolic rate to go up six times a day. But only a little. So I remember the time that that was like very, very healthy. Um, yeah. I mean, I feel like it's still prescribed. Yeah. Keep your metabolism running at all hours of the day. Exactly. And the second myth is that eating like this controls hunger. But that evidence is hard to find. And I know for me personally, I'm less hungry the longer I fast. So. Yeah. 
And I feel like if I'm constantly feeding my body, Mm -hmm. I would constantly be hungry. And these are like the eating habits that I grew up on and that I, and this is why I don't feel like I've ever really had a true binge eating disorder. The hallmarks Uh of binge eating disorders, like rapid eating of a vast amount of food in like a quick session. I was always a grazer who would just eat constantly like a little here a little snack there like just constantly because like that's how I was raised that's what I was told to do so Mm -hmm. um yeah once people decided that grazing was better I suppose all sorts of reasons were invented to justify it (laughs) I'm like yes they were I I was there inventing it the third myth is that eating frequently keeps blood glucose from getting too low (laughs) Which I, I, and I know I have friends, like my hangry friends who are like, oh, I feel like my blood sugar is so low. And it's like, no, it's not. No. Don't be a doof. No. Like, unless you have diabetes, your blood sugar is fine. It's fine. Whether you eat six times a day or six times a month. If you don't have diabetes, you're fine. <laughs> uh, Hang- what a ding Yeah. Bag. Hangriness is just mental. It's not real. You guys, stop. And it's not cute either. It's not cute. It's not a cute look. No. It's not a good shade. Yeah. And um, so we're eating. So, you know, unlike back in the 70s, now we're eating all the time. Like our fasting window is almost non-existent. So yeah, crazier still is that we've been brainwashed to believe that constantly eating is somehow good for us. Not just acceptable, but actually healthy for us. And now it's acceptable to eat anywhere. We can eat in the car. We can eat in the movie theater. We can also don't. It's it's disrespectful to the filmmakers, you guys. We can eat in front of the TV. We can eat in front of the computer. We can eat while walking. We can eat while talking. We can eat in a box. We can eat with a fox. We can eat in the house. We can eat with a mouse. I think you get the picture. Yeah, I was about to say we get I it. I love it. <laughs> Which is, like, it baffles me because we've been taught for so long to eat less, move more. So why are we eating more now? Exactly. And how is that healthy? So which is the right answer? I know. It's so confusing. It's so bad. It's so insane. And of course, snacks are things that tend to be higher in refined carbs. Like, Like I said at the fat camp, they gave us a piece of fruit, some crackers. Like, it's always these carby things that, of course, were low fat. Um. Of course. Yeah. So um, we never consider the implications of drastic changes we've made in meal timing. Think about it this way. In 1960, we ate three meals a day. There wasn't much obesity. In 2014, we eat six meals a day. There's an obesity epidemic. Exactly. While movies such as Super Size Me. Oh, hey. What? A little shade? A little callback. Oh. (laughs) Call back to the pod. Uh, see episode mm, three. I don't know. Two. Two. Three. three? Two. Two. Um, seven. <laughs> but those movies 22? get all the headlines. And while people screech about portion control, the main culprit lies completely hidden. The insidious. The insidious snack. Oh, I like that. <laughs> New oh. drag name. Insidious snack. <laughs> oh, please welcome to the stage. <laughs> insidious snack. I think that's mine. I want to be insidious snack. Okay. And I get to, and I okay. miss Petty Storms. Petty Storms, an insidious snack. <laughs> I love it. Oh, I love it. Um, this situation sounds just as crazy as it sounds. Eat more to weigh less. That doesn't even sound like work. And guess what? It doesn't. It doesn't work. I'll go work. figure. 
Go figure, fun. So what does work? Well, I imagine we'll find out. <laughs> we will eventually find out. And next week, next week we'll talk about part four, which is the social phenomenon of obesity. And I'm excited about this because he invents the word diabesity, which is so real and goes into oh, like poverty and obesity. And I'm really excited to talk about childhood obesity as someone who was an right. obese child. Well, good. Yeah. So that concludes our discussion of the obesity code for this week. It was good. We hope it was enjoyable. I, I thought it was a much more informative and useful part as fun. opposed to the previous one. I understand you got to set up the joke for the punchline, yes. but this one was much more enjoyable. I agree. <sighs> and well, I think it's that's a good time to wrap things up, don't yes, you? Yes, absolutely. We have gone late, for those of you listening. Uh-huh. We devote ourselves to you guys. We do. Our long nights. I'm just saying it's approaching 3 a.m. here in Atlanta. 2 a.m. here in Fort Worth. <laughs> but it's all worth it. It's all worth and it. We do it for you. I really enjoyed this episode. It was it was a good one. It was informative. It was entertaining. And I most think. importantly, I found a new drag name. And we talked about hormones. Uh huh. It's so, very important. It's great. It's all great. That's fabulous. <sighs> so that's going to wrap up our show this week. Thank you all for listening, Liz. I know that I can find you on Instagram at Liz everfasting and i know i can find you at keto.colin and i know we can yes. find both of us at the, the keto, keto cult, cult pod. pod and i know if you have the chance and enjoyed listening you can rate mm. review oh subscribe yes. in apple please please we would love that and also uh write us a check for 8.2 million dollars oh oh that's it that's easy get us to do up and running yeah, and if just like if just if ten of you did that, just uh-huh. imagine <laughs> what we could do. <laughs> if just ten, if ju- like literally only ten of you give us eight point two million dollars, mm-hmm. like just a small portion of your weekly salary. Yep. I mean, we could take this thing global. Ah, oh, be beautiful. <laughs> All right. Oh, but so until Liz, next time, I will see you next time. And until then, sorry, I'll see you in the stories. Oh, I'll see you in the stories. We can never nail that. One day. I think it's because we're at, by the end of it, we're so delusionally tired that... I also think it's because no one's given us $8.2 million yet. Oh. Yeah, that would change everything. If, I, I would nail that last line. <laughs> oh, yeah. I would. It would be a slam dunk. Uh, aspirations. All right. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Insulin resistance is Lex Luthor. It is the hidden force behind most of modern medicine's arch enemies, including obesity, diabetes, fatty liver, Alzheimer's disease, heart disease, cancer, high blood pressure, and high cholesterol. But while Lex Luthor is fictional, the insulin resistance syndrome, also called the metabolic syndrome, is not.